The Short Change Podcast is made possible by our friends at Super. Super is a fundraising platform that helps activists and creators like us build community around the causes we support. What's really cool is Super has partnered with incredible mission-driven brands to offer discount codes, perks, and monthly giveaways right back to the donors. I have personally worked with the team at Super for a while now, and I am totally inspired by their vision for a new way of generosity that is collective, accessible, and more impactful. Super is a one-stop shop to compound our giving power and activate our purchasing power to make a positive impact on our planet and in our communities. Our short change fund at Super allows listeners like you to support us in the amazing organizations going through the Little Bit of Good capacity building program in one place while giving you an inside look into the progress these organizations are making in their communities. Check it out and join the community at heysuper.com shortchanged. Welcome to the Short Change Podcast, where we seek to understand why and how organizations and leaders driving important change in our communities are coming up short. Alongside experts and changemakers, we'll uncover and untangle the structures built to accelerate good, but too often slow it down. But we won't stop there. We'll explore innovative ideas and new paths forward so that organizations, and therefore our communities, get what they are due. I'm Monique. And I'm Taylor. Whether you lead a for good movement, support a cause, or just want to be equipped to engage and give well, you are in the right place. We're so glad you're here. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Short Change Podcast. It's so good to have you. Today, we're going to focus on two of my favorite and most frustrating topics, granting structures and the why behind them. Today, we'll discuss the grant-making process, go through the hoops organizations experience to receiving funding, and perhaps share some tangible actions grantmakers can take to be more accessible and equitable in their giving. Our mission at Little Bit of Good, personally, Personally, uh, focuses directly on funding inequity in the nonprofit space. And now in funding a nonprofit myself, I'm experiencing all of the red tape, the mystery, and the frustration of this system. I'm both excited and so curious to dive into the combo with our guest today. And we could not think of anyone better to lead us in this conversation than our new friend, Lisa Sullivan. Lisa is the founder of LS Ventures, through which she empowers organizations, companies, and individuals to challenge the status quo. Lisa is a connector, bridge builder between philanthropic organizations and community-based nonprofit organizations. She facilitates equitable investment of philanthropic resources in marginalized communities who, because of systemic oppression, experience barriers in access to resources and opportunities. She helps nonprofits increase their funding and expand their impact. She was integral to the building of one of the few foundations focused in the aging space. She is most proud of being a partner in building a $2.5 million COVID relief fund for nonprofits serving older adults. And she also started the first young professionals program focused on supporting aging initiatives. In addition to consulting, Lisa serves the Denver community as a member of the Creative Ideas Fund Council, supporting projects created by those experiencing developmental disabilities. And she's also a board member for Adam purpose, serving the Black community with grief support, hope, and healing, which makes us so excited that she has decided to join us today. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. I, like, hear my own bio, like, oh, is that what it is? Like, okay. How amazing fancy. you are. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, like, not really in this game with toot my own horn, but I guess so. Toot, 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 toot. Yeah, we'll toot it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for having me. Oh, my gosh. We are so yeah. happy you're here today. And before we really jump in, we just want to check in on you. How are you feeling? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to just have this conversation. It's beautiful here in Denver today. Windy, but beautiful. So I will, like, take that as a... Uh, the a reminder of like the little bit of good that each of us have in us. And mm-hmm. like, I'm just here to talk about this, be a disruptor in every good way possible. 
And, you know, in hopes that this will inspire someone, it will inspire an organization, an individual, a company, or whatever mm-hmm. that is, to be different. Because we can be different and mm-hmm. we can do hard things. So. so Absolutely. Good. Yes. Uh, we're yes. already dropping gems. We haven't even yes. I know, right? <laughs> I am so excited for our conversation yes. today. Uh, so Taylor gave you a fantastic introduction. Um, but if you just want to start out talking to us a bit about your experience working in a grant-making organization, um, what are some of the roles you've held uh, and what was it like? Yeah. So um, I have always been in nonprofits. I haven't always been on the grant making side, but I actually started off volunteering for Coleman, Colorado to advocate for breast health for men and women. So I was on a community grants panel where that's all we did was review proposals for organizations who were seeking funding um, to support patients, client health and clinicians and that work. And then I use that as the jumping off point to then get into working for a grant making foundation. So I spent two, a couple of like as a pass through organization as the fundraising arm that would then distribute dollars. And then I went directly into a grant making organization. Um, one is a program officer, which I never understood why they ever called it that as the title. Maybe that's part of the issue. I'm like, none of that makes sense. Every time you put that in, it's like a tech thing. I'm like, it's not tech. But anyway. Um, and so as a program officer, just the general, you know, reviewing proposals, building an organization, getting out there in community, and then just before I started doing consulting, I was doing grant making and in the, a position of um, community engagement. So I was a program officer that was solely focused on community engagement, getting in, digging in, understanding who who are we impacting, who are we not reaching, what are these areas. Um, and my full blown, if I could, if I could call it or characterize it as something, it was so special and frustrating at the same mm. time. Um, super rewarding. And also frustrating because it was a building a plane as you fly it. It was a brand new converted organization. So I got to touch every single part and I got to touch every single part. So it was like, uh, wow. So now we have lots of dollars to give away. Um, every year is somewhere between 10 and $12 million a year, which isn't a lot depending on who's listening on this call when this does, you know, and it could be, it could be a lot of money. It could be very little money. Um, so a lot of it was tied to, you know, impact the measurement, all the things, there was lots of paperwork. It was more paperwork than what I ever thought I ever wanted to be involved in because I was like, I want to be in community. I Mm -hmm. want to be at a table talking to people who are on the ground, making an impact. And that's not always what I felt. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of times it was like, oh, there's a report (laughs) due. At the six month mark. Oh, there's a report due at the 12 month mark. And I'm like, my role is to help steward dollars and put them out there. Reading paperwork and getting stuck in report lane is not where Mm. I want to (laughs) be. That was a lot of the work. And you know, when you tell people like, oh, I get paid to give money away. It's like, "Mm, it's just not that simple. If only. That's cute. If only. That's cute. But what it did do was it opened my eyes so much to the possibilities that we have as just human beings, the Mm -hmm. opportunities that sit within us as people. And then what happens when we come together, like truly collectively, like those are the things that drove me every day to get up and go to work Mm -hmm. and do the thing. And now that I'm not in that traditional sense anymore and I'm doing this you know, I'm consulting and really working with nonprofits. What I've really learned is that relationships are literally the foundation, no pun intended, but like that is the foundation. If you are going to build, scale, anything, relationships, that is what matters. And like seeing people as they are, meeting people where they are is really where the impact is, no matter what job that you're in. And I think it's a matter of like flipping it on its head and saying like, what can I do? How can I be of service in whatever way speaks to me in my heart? And that may look different for different people. And now here I am, you know, having a touch point with multiple different organizations in leadership, different missions, all of those things 
but it's across the board. It's not sitting within one organization. So maybe I'm more effective that way. That's still, you know, jury's still out. We'll see. Sure looks like it. I don't know if yeah. the jury's out. I think the jury might be in. I think you brought up um, some really good points that I just want to point out quickly, because I know that a lot of our conversation today will be aimed at, you know, people working within the sector and grant makers. Um, But just that specific call out to individuals and just our everyday philanthropists and, um, you know, what you said Mm -hmm. in terms of like, we can all have our own personal individual impact. Doesn't necessarily have to be connected to, you know, some greater thing just what you as an individual can do and then imagining what a bunch of individuals in community can do. So Mm -hmm. I love that you, you know, pointed that out. I always want to ask because, you know, like Issa Rae said, I'm supporting for, I'm rooting for everybody Black. I'm supporting, I'm thinking about, I'm nervous about, I'm worried about everybody Black. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to ask, as a Black professional in this space, in the grant-making space, you know, how has your experience been? Has your personal identity impacted your work in funding at all? Ooh. Y'all, do you got an extra two hours to uh, talk about this? <laughs> um, wow, that's a fabulous question. I have been called a unicorn like countless times of, we don't see you here very often. You're in this really privileged position, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, y'all, I'm, I'm not a hu- unicorn. I'm a human, like a whole human, right? And... I, unfortunately, like microaggressions at every turn. Conferences are probably the worst uh, because, you know, there, this is people from across the country coming in to do these things, right? Um, My experience, you know, as a Black woman in this role in grant making, the weight of what it feels like to have access to funds, knowing your community is in need, Mm -hmm. and then being told from the decision makers who don't look like you, who are the ones who will typically make the final decision on those things. And it's often been no, feels like a personal attack on my own community. Mm. So that in and of itself carried weight. And as a program officer, I hate to say these words, but it's kind of like you're a gatekeeper. And as many, you know, you are the one who can sometimes decide where is this money going? Who is it going to? And in certain amounts and all of those things. And when it doesn't happen and it's very particular and it feels like it's identity based and you are subjected to bias from board members, from leadership that then start making decisions and making judgment calls for communities that they have no idea about. And then when you're sitting in it, in the middle of it, the midst of it and trying to reconcile what their thoughts are you have some access, but you don't have power, like, right? So you can infl- you can barely influence decision, barely. And then when the answer is no, after you've poured your heart into something, it can really sting. So there was a lot of that that it occurred internally and then happening, uh, you know, culturally and within the team and who, we, who I worked with. I was the only one in too many instances and felt as if I had to you know, be the spokesperson for our mm. community. Yes. And people would come to me asking me questions. And I'm like, y'all, I-, I can't speak for everyone. I am an expert in my own lived experience, which is deeply valuable. And I can't speak for everybody. And I'm not your Black resource. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and you need to do your own work because the level of emotional labor that folks in uh, in the Black community have experienced and then Sometimes it's a re-traumatization by having to re-educate people on your own trauma. And it's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. So ultimately, if it looks as if, you know, I'm not being celebrated and honored, and this might be true for several who's sitting in the same seat, you got to go to a place where you're honored and seen and loved on. And your Mm -hmm. lived experience is the thing that is the valuable piece Mm -hmm. that helps you move your work and move the needle. Challenging the status quo, what does that look like? Yes. That looks like you're being disruptive. That looks like, yep, I will raise my voice. No, I'm not angry, but I am passionate about this. 
That's what it means. It means you create this opportunity to say, we can do it different. And tradition does not always mean it's right. I I think that this sentiment is carried across various sectors, especially Mm -hmm. when you're Mm -hmm. the only and the only of many kinds, you know, in spaces. But what you mentioned in Mm -hmm. terms of carrying that weight, knowing that there are needs in the community, but also in alignment with the fact that the grant process is absolutely not just giving away money. So can you dive into Mm -hmm. more around the grant process and what that life cycle looks like for organizations? from application to funding to reporting? Yes. So I'll just preface this and say every single funder is different. What they want is different. Deadlines are different. Eligibility is different. Focus area is different. So this isn't like blanketed in a generalization, but I can take you through like the process that I experienced and things that were different. So sitting in an organization to kind of walk you through this. It's like checking for eligibility, like, okay, are they eligible? Can you, do you fit flag number one, but do you fit into what this organization wants to give money for? Does your mission align? Is your focus align or your programs align? That's step one. May or may not include, you know, a possibility of reaching out to a funder. Like this is speaking from like the, the grant seeking side of things. Like maybe the funder is open to a prior conversation. Maybe they're not, kind of depends on what they want to do. So then we go through like an application process. So we're opening things up. There's a due date. You might get a look at the application. The length and attachments and what they ask for varies based on the funder. Hmm. You spend hours, days, blood, sweat, tears writing a proposal, like creating your application, responding to the questions, attaching your documents, getting team member input. Then you submit your application. We just submitted the application. Like you see all the things that I just went through and you haven't even submitted the application yet. So in that process, it's submitted, you've done your thing. Then the vetting process starts. So this could be, are you a real or entity? Maybe. Who's there? Let's review what you want to do. How are you going to spend this money? In what time frame are you going to spend this money? Wait at least six weeks, probably longer to get an answer at least. And then if you get an answer, may, maybe if you if you get an answer, what if it's yes, fantastic. Then that starts a whole nother set of processes of like contracting and agreements and all the legalese and 27 pages of signing a grant agreement. If you are declined, you may not ever know why you got declined. Ever. Ooh, speak and on hello, it. folks, you have been foundationed. You've given <laughs> all this information. You've spent hours on an application. And then you were denied. And the common courtesy of the funder to just tell you like, hey, you didn't get it. And here's why. That typically doesn't happen. So now you're left in the dark and you don't know if you, what can I improve on as part of this process? And how can we be better? Maybe you find that out. Maybe you don't. Let's go on the track of you got awarded the funding. So in this process, now you've been awarded the funding. Yay, you can start. Six months in, here's your first report. Maybe your funder told you these are the things we want you to track and measure. Maybe they didn't. Maybe you're using your own tracking and measurement, you know, what you want to use that works for your organization and your programs. If you have a system. (laughs) If you have that. At six months, they may check in. Maybe they check in before then. Maybe not. And then you, depending on the length of your grant, at the 12-month mark or the one-year mark, if that was the length of your funding for a year, you do another report. Maybe it's a site visit. Maybe you end up closing out. And then the process just starts over again. So that was like super lengthy, sort of. And I still gave you like a condensed version of like, this is like top to bottom of what typically mm-hmm. happens. That's what, what I've seen in my experience. And it can be different. And having been on both sides, it absolutely can be faster, <laughs> more streamlined, <laughs> less burdensome on the applicant more of building the relationship because that's really what I'm talking about here mm-hmm. and really being intentional about what you want to do as a grant seeker and as a grant maker, but the onus is on the funder. Do better. Mm. 
100%. And I love the you have been foundationed. I absolutely love it. And to put it in maybe more relatable perspective, it's it's the same thing when you apply to a job and you Mm -hmm. go through the interview Mm -hmm. and you don't get the feedback. And you maybe it went great, maybe it didn't, but we can't make actionable changes without any kind of feedback. Thank Um, you. Mm -hmm. And we can argue, you know, the grant app process is far more (laughs) difficult (laughs) than applying for a job. So, yeah, Yeah. I appreciate you going through the the details on that, because I do think if from from the folks who, you know, aren't intimately involved in in the grant applying process, Mm -hmm. people probably just assume, well, yeah, you just like tell them what you do and they love it and then they give you money and that's awesome. But I, 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 so I appreciate the wider perspective that, that you brought just to really show how, how burdensome it really can be. It really can be. It can be. And uh, to your point about that, like it's small nonprofits growing, you know, smaller organizations, everyone's wearing multiple hats, right? Mm -hmm. So when we start talking about someone who's maybe a founder and executive director, they might be the only person on staff. There might be a program person, maybe. So that person is writing the grant, collecting the data, submitting the thing, talking to someone, all all that stuff's happening. And sometimes it's the same person who's doing all this stuff, right? So at that point now, and it might even be for like, $2,500. Right. Is it worth it? At that Mm. point, is it worth it for all of the time and the human resource spent Mm. in crafting this application for $2,500? Like what? But Mm. knowing that a smaller budget in an organization like that $2,500 could completely change the trajectory of the organization. So you do it and then you probably complain about it and fuss the whole time. But you're Mm. like, but it's twenty five hundred dollars. We we, we can need do this. this thing. Right. Yes, yes. Ha- countless nonprofits doing mm-hmm. this that are small teams trying to figure it out. The Short Change Pod does not exist without our sister organization, Little Bit of Good. Little Bit of Good is on a mission to eradicate funding inequity in the nonprofit sector. Our first step is through our four-month capacity-building program for Black-led organizations. The first cohort just kicked off, and we can't wait to see how these six organizations soar. You can join our community of activators by supporting the Shortchanged Fund at heysuper.com shortchanged. You can also follow along and support all things Little Bit of Good on our website, littlebitofgood.org, or on Instagram at littlebitofgood underscore. We're also on LinkedIn. Do your little bit of good today. I feel everything you've mentioned, although we understand the need for process and structure and when we're dealing with 501Cs and the IRS, there needs yep. to be, you know, some um, check stops, you know. Yep. But it definitely feels like the application and funding process has a lot of maybe barriers for organizations where it feels like funders are looking for reasons not to Mm -hmm. engage as opposed to really leaning in to want to support organizations. Mm -hmm. And I know that it can be like a totally loaded question, but do you have any thoughts as to why that might be? I think a lot of it sits within power and maintaining control. And some of it also is sitting with bias and thinking (laughs) that, well, I already know what they need. I I don't need to know anymore. I don't, Mm. we have the resource. We're the ones with the funding. They're the ones coming to us. Why do I have to give more as part of this relationship? You told me what you needed the money for. It made sense. Just take the money. I don't want to be involved, except for if you've fallen down, then I want to be involved, right? Mm -hmm. If If it looks like you've shifted funds and it's not approved, then I want to be involved because that's power and control Mm -hmm. versus let me walk with you lockstep in this process. We are building our relationship so that in the event that you are falling down, I know about this and I can step in as your partner to help you. Then that way the impact goes farther. 
everyone is engaging at a different different level, deeper level, and everybody wins. So like mm-hmm. that, the mm-hmm. process of like stepping in instead of pulling back and saying, well, we don't want to be involved. And it's like, well, well, why are you doing this then? You're not saving anybody. Mm-hmm. You're not. And you can be involved in a process and allow those who stand to be deeply impacted by your decision-making. You can pull back from meddling in that and allow them to like, work the process, do what they want to do. And you can be a partner in this. So again, it's like power, power together, not Mm -hmm. power over, create opportunities to co-create. And then we're able to deepen our level of impact and engagement. And it doesn't look like you're telling people what to do. It looks like you're holding someone's hand with intention and partnership to actually move the needle and make it change, make it work. We don't get out of this mess by ourselves. So how do we work within each of our lanes to really leverage each other and like support? Like, what does that look like? Wow. Power together instead of power over. Beautifully said. Okay. I do want to stop on one point here too. Obviously there is, there is space for reasonable and responsible vetting, but how is that different than what, is being asked of these nonprofit organizations? It's a good question. I think, you know, the responsible vetting to me, again, is less, it's less hoop jumping, right? Mm. It's, it's understanding that you, you want to see an organization in a healthy financial position, just to give an example, um, to know that like, okay, like you might be smaller, but like you're managing your funds. Great. And if that's maybe not the case, is there a potential opportunity to provide some technical assistance as part of your process of identifying what does said organization need? And when we talk about responsible vetting, it's not looking at it and saying, well, organization A over here is everything's put together. They have a big team, a big budget, all the things, and you are not that. So we can't fund you. It's not that. It's We understand that you have different needs as an organization and that different life cycles or stages in your organization will change the way that we are reviewing what you're doing, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's in a way, there is some implying an equitable lens to that and saying, well, every organization is different. In what way can we function as the funder to be in this responsible vetting stage and saying they might need a little more capacity building? They're maybe not ready to do X, Y, or Z, but we can support them and connect them to other resources Mm. to help them get there. So as the funder, I think about it as if I'm giving you feedback on something or we vetted and I've identified something um, that maybe is a gap, let me as the resource driver help point you in a direction to guide you into finding that, Mm. then come back and apply when you are confidently able to put an application forward, right? That's what I think of when I say here, responsible vetting and want to define that. When I look at traditional application process, it's very task oriented, tick a box. If it's this, it's, it's very, it's very binary, like this or that, like, There's no gray, there's no in-between, but yet when the funder's reviewing your application, we won't won't want to call it, it's a science, it's an art. (laughs) So it's okay for you to operate in the gray when it's coming to reviewing this proposal and making a decision and being real wishy-washy there. But me as the grant applicant, it's not okay if I have gray somewhere, right? So like you see where the issues are, like the challenges with this of like tradition, Hmm. taking a box yeah, with no questions surrounding any part of it, right? Every organization has a story to tell and ticking a box doesn't tell the organization's story. All it does is say you have A or B without actually understanding like, why don't you, why, why are some of these things Mm -hmm. not there? Like, and when we, you know, really open that up and look at what's happening, these are probably traditionally marginalized populations that are being represented They might be run by someone who's representative of a marginalized population. So that in and of itself is preventing a resource from getting to what they need. So then when we look at the traditional grant process and vetting, of course, those don't fit and tick the box 
because mm-hmm. the resource was never there for them to get to that point. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It does. I also think it's just fair to call out. I've seen it work the other way around where there's organizations that on the other side of the curtain, there is nothing in order, no process, no structure, no goal, no vision, but they've gotten lucky and they've received Mm. a grant from a credible foundation before, or they've received, you know, some notoriety on a certain platform. Automatically, they're getting that funding. Mm. There's no partnership with the funder. The money is then not ideally utilized and then the funds are not available the next year around because of that lack of partnership there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And this, and that in and of itself is like, it's kind of that question of in what areas can even nonprofits function in the space of being partners, like nonprofits together as partners as a grant seeker. And then what does that relationship look like with your funder and how do we create it in a way that, is more open and is encouraging people to really work, work, one, working together, not forcing people to partner. Like, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is each organization kind of has their, their expertise and if functioning in the expertise and you are direct service, for example, that's, that's what you do and you do it really well, but you may not do strategy very well. So can you partner with, that other org that maybe does strategy really well to support you in some of your direct service type of work. So it's more of like weaving of what organizations want to do on mission and vision and aligning those things in a way that actually makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and also functioning to like help said organization who maybe didn't have any other back end stuff. Like, you know, you, you lift up the hood and you're like, wow, there is a whole lot of nut. What's happening here? How did you get this money? What is going on? How did this happen? Right? And that being able to understand and say, okay, well, we know maybe you understand why they got that money, maybe not. Um, But if you're the organization where things are really on the up and up and you need more of a resource, where is that person, entity, thing. What, what is it? Where is it? Where does it exist? Can I use it? How can I use it? How does this apply to me where everybody has a chance to benefit from it? That's so good. good. And that reminds me of something we all talked about offline before we were recording was this reciprocity. So really this, <laughs> and I think that's just synonymous for partnership, that back and forth, that two-way conversation between yeah, the funders, the the grant so the grant makers the grant seekers and I love how you touched on the collaboration between other nonprofits but I also think if the the partnership between the grant makers and the grant seekers is more trust based and more yep. two way flowing then you also have more freedom to go right. into those collaborative relationships around right. you as well and so I just appreciate the way that you you shared that. Um, okay, so we have talked uh, about some of the various structures built into the grant making process that really ultimately um, have the power to exclude many. But can we dive in with you a little bit about what groups have been historically excluded? And overall, what are the impacts that's, that that is having on those organizations and more importantly, the communities they're supporting? There's another one where I could spend like two hours, like for days talking about that. Um, at its core, when we talk about structures, the granting process, you are often leaving out BIPOC-led and serving mm-hmm. organizations. So when I BIPOC, that's Black, Indigenous, people of color, Native, um, people, those with disabilities, women, uh, traditionally marginalized, like th- this is where we are. Those are who is typically excluded when we start talking about traditional application process, uh, invite only and invitation only, which makes it like this really supposed to be exclusive club, but we're really looking at being exclusionary when we do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we talk about invitation only, it's like, well, who benefits from that? And in my opinion, benefits from that is the funder. That's who's really benefiting from invitation only because when, from an internal, from an internal side of things, and you think about that, like that's helping this internal staff 
go through their own process, take as long as they probably want to do whatever it is. And I don't really feel like that's really being truly transparent on what grounds and who decided that, right? Mm -hmm. So now when we look at how nonprofits are traditionally run, who they're run by, who foundations are typically run by, who's on the board of trustees or the board of directors, who's making decisions. These are not people who are typically representative of who they're intending to reach in some cases. And that's also part of the problem, right? So we talk about it's an invite only, but who's qualifying the invite, Mm -hmm. right? Who's doing So that in and of itself, when you think about like, well, it's invite only. Okay, well, then you just cut off an entire segment of people who you might actually be able to partner with mm-hmm. to then make more change and impact in the community. And that brings me to, in the that exclusion, it's creating even more scarcity, right? Because now we're all, you know, digging out of the same pot of money, rep- applying for funds, and there's already scarcity that exists. And it's even deeper scarcity when we start talking about these populations who are already historically been left out and excluded. And now we're looking at potentially shutting down viable programs because there's no money for those or programs can't Mm. get off the ground, which means people aren't being supported and they're not being helped because there's no money. And it's not, it's not for not having a great mission. It's because Mm -hmm. there's no money because the, the wall is so high Mm. and like the, the bar is so high that it's really, it's not fair. We know this. It's inequitable. We know this. Tradition and ticking a box and task listing things mm. when you already are in a, basically starting at potentially a deficit. And then when you layer in these identities on top of the work that you're doing, like all of these intersections functioning co- like at the same time, like, yeah, like you have nonprofits on a shoestring budget. Mm. Jumping back a bit and talking about the reporting structures that go along with some of this grant funding. And I am a data girl. I definitely understand the importance of, you know, gathering and collecting data and metrics and understanding how your program is servicing the community. But can we dump into, and this is going to be kind of multi-part. What is the goal of reporting from a funder perspective? And then can you also talk about how reporting can be prohibitive to a mission, you know, really expanding their work, but also mm. some of the benefits that both grant organizations and org- and nonprofits may benefit from reporting. Yeah. I don't want to just, you know, poop on reporting <laughs> structures. No, no. Or funders or all of that. We'll do that. <laughs> I mean, I think we all want to know how well things are going or if we're making change or there's progress. So I feel like those are the good parts of what we're looking at of like, who are you intending to impact? Why are, you know, what's the why behind that? And measuring progress and like from a funder side of things, like they're going to follow the money. They want to know that you've been a good steward of the dollars. You're spending it the way you said that you would. And they have the ability to say, we have contributed to making said impact for this organization because what they want to do in their programs are aligned with what we want to fund. How are they making that happen? What projects are they involved in? And that sort of thing. That's all good and well. And on the other side of that is also like as the the grantee partner or the organization who received the funding, it might actually help you to advance your work so you can track and measure and use some of the data to help you pivot in areas where you need to Mm. and shore up areas or even identifying gaps that might exist. So like using the data to help you make some decisions But if those things aren't in place for you as the nonprofit, but you understand that like you need these things, this is where we start talking about capacity building and technical assistance, right? Yes. Mm. So as the funder, if you are looking for this type of measurement and you like what the organization is doing, who's applied, and you realize that like, well, they don't really, it's not a robust way that they're tracking this or that certain pieces aren't there that we're looking for. Well, then A, ask yourself, you as the funder, do you need that? data point? Do you really need that? Number one. And if you do, 
are you willing and committed to supporting the applicant and the grantee mm. on making it happen to provide that metric for you? And if the answer is no, then you need to ask yourself again as the funder, why do you want this measurement? Why are you asking wow. your grantees to report on it? What is the reason, right? The flip side of that too is like for the the organization that getting clear on what you want to measure that makes sense. And it's not always how many people you've served. It's not always how many meals you gave out. It's not always that. Sometimes you have anecdotal information that's just coming from you in the form of a community telling you a story that is impactful. But it's not like we're just ticking a box and understanding that we've served 10,000 people. Great. Mm. But what did you learn? Mm-hmm. Like it's those types of measurement. It's like, yes, you need the data. Absolutely. And you need the anecdotal things. So yes, you need the quality and some quantity that's in there too. Um, and I think what's really big with this is like measuring the metrics that matter. Mm. Right. So what does this mean? Ask as the funder of the grantee partner, what are you looking at? Hmm. And this is where you listen. You don't speak. You listen to what's happening, what's being relayed to you. Hmm. And if they're like, well, we track the number of people. Great. Why do you do that? But you let them tell you what they're doing with their data. Not, Hmm. we want you to do it with this, this way from the top down. But then we're not going to actually help you on achieving what that data point is to give right. us the measurement. So like this is, how, again, part of the brokenness of like you have a funder who might do that. And then they say, well, you're not meeting the metric. But you as the, the grantee partner are like, well, I didn't know that that's what you wanted me to track. Hmm. So it's like, well, who wins here? Nobody wins here. So <laughs> that's why it's like. Talk to your grantee partner, continue to engage and build the relationship, understand what the needs are for a specific community, right? And even in your evaluation and measurement and data and tracking, include the people who stand to benefit the most and be impacted by what you are measuring. Mm. Don't exclude them from the conversation because when you do that, this is how we see gaps, this is our like, well, this funding was intended for this particular area of the population and it's not going there. Well, obviously there's something that's happening there. But if you don't have that relationship engagement and conversation and you don't have this exchange, you will never know how you can actually help each other. And again, I put some of the onus of this is on the funder. You have the resources. Right. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So I, to kind of tie this conversation into a bow, we've been talking a lot about these, you know, this focus on partnerships over power, Mm. power together rather than power over. Um, I'll reiterate that. Um, So how, what are, what are your closing thoughts? What, what is, what are some things you want to leave our listeners with of how we can be more intentional about these partnerships, Mm. uh, but also just even for the individual, maybe we've got some individuals listening that are yeah. grant makers. What what can we do? What's next? <laughs> Ooh, that's good. It's loaded too. Um, <laughs> we need a part two. I know. I, maybe this is like a part two. I, one of the things I think it's really important, no matter what, is whether you are an individual and you you know have resources to give away and support community whether you are a grant-making entity, think of this as money is a resource and that's just one resource, but providing an opportunity to really co-create, get out of your own way, right? And what do I mean by that? I mean, if there is something that's on your heart or that speaks to you as an individual, this is where you want to how can you spread out what it is that you, what speaks to you and allow other people to then benefit from it as well. Um, And it's not always in the form of money. I mean, I know that we've been talking a lot about grant making and funding and the process and things like that, but are there other areas where you can do a little bit of good, right? Come on. Where, (laughs) right? Where else is that? So yes, it's time, it's talent, it's treasures, it's those Mm -hmm. areas. But where can you as the individual do some of your own work to better understand what motivates you and how you can then be 
an, a part of like the solution. It sounds cheesy. Maybe it's a little overdone or overstated, but each of us, I think, have our own ways about how we may define what doing good is and what it means to be of service. And it's like, find what that means to you and for you and then go do it. Hmm. Not just for you. I don't believe any of us are here is not to be anything that's self-serving, right? You have those things, but if you have a tool, you have a resource, you have privilege, use it. Yes. Use it. Because the next person that's coming behind you or looking at someone who's next to you who maybe doesn't look like you, isn't into what you are into, hasn't had the context, the access that you have, you can create an opportunity to like, Bring somebody else along. Mm-hmm. Leverage what your privilege is to create another opportunity for the next person. Mm. Because this is where we're able to like spread some things out, right? Do it in your own way, but know that like there are areas where you can be part of breaking down some of this tradition. You can challenge the status quo. And yes, you will upset some people. Mm-hmm. But if that's what it takes to advance us and move us forward, well, then we all stand to benefit from that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's just this, it's a way for us to see it, envision it. And it's, if it's uncomfortable, it's probably, you're probably in a good spot Mm -hmm. because resting in the discomfort, understanding that because you're experiencing discomfort, because you might be in privilege and what does that mean? And when you're in situations of the discomfort, whether it's an opportunity to give money, a chance to learn about another mission, a chance to support a nonprofit and volunteer that looks completely different than anything you've ever known, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But if you're uncomfortable, you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. You're doing it right. Because not all of us have the opportunity to look away when things get really bad. Some of us are here in it every single day. So I would just offer up and invite those who are listening, who are from a different background. If you are operating and centering and sitting in where you are privileged, in what ways can you actually stand to help all of us move it along Hmm. in whatever way that that looks like and stepping outside of like and centering yourself and work on focusing and centering someone else who doesn't have it the same way that you do. Right. I love, I mean, although our conversation today was centered around the grant process and, you know, systems and structures and things, I feel like a, the majority of what I gleaned from our talk is majorly surrounded with community and mm-hmm. collaboration and the vehicle that the collective of Mm. us builds to really get us to the destination so much faster. And I think when I think about that vehicle and everyone being a resource or having something to add and give, when you think about the makeup of a car, you know, everybody is not an engine. Sometimes you're the bolt on the tire. That's right. That's right. I think about having something to offer. Mm. I think if you have two hours of free time a month. And you're like, you know what? I have two hours a month. I have a list of things. I have administrative (laughs) things that I will take two hours. If you are, you know, a person who owns a car wash, you know, offer up your services to someone who does something with bikes or cars or trucks who may need Mm -hmm. that washed. I think there's so many creative opportunities to provide supports um, that are just so necessary. Yes. You've mm-hmm. tugged at my my tender heart. <laughs> I loved our conversation. Me too. Me too. This we, is good. We love to um, just wrap up with a couple rapid fire questions. Okay. More casual, you know, t- let's loosen now. Okay. Um, so mm-hmm. if you're ready, I'm ready. ready to go. All right, Lisa, we go. what's the last book you read? We Should All Be Millionaire- Millionaires by Rachel Rogers. I just ordered that book. Was it <laughs> oh amazing? My Lit- yes. Yes. Listen. Yes. It's fantastic. Shout out Rachel Rogers, wherever this is at. 
if you are somewhere listening to this podcast, <laughs> just know that now you just got another shout out. But anyway, I'll be right Hey, there. Rachel. Hey, Rachel. <laughs> I know. What is making your life easier right now? Um, okay. So I haven't dug into using this deeply yet, but a colleague of mine introduced me to something called Scribe, which helps you real nerdy, real here, um, <laughs> real nerdy. Um, it helps you create standard operating procedures, oh. like from it can, you can download it onto your, um, like it's an extension. And if you are going through a process that you repetitively do, you can like select scribe and it'll track all everything that you're doing. Ooh. And then it will create a standard operating procedure like for yes. you. So like you basically run yourself through your process and how you do it. And then yeah. it will populate. And now you have wow. like it in a nice little package. So yeah, it's the nerd in me. I actually got really excited about it. I was like, oh man, then I don't have to think of this myself. This right. is Look, automation. That's an incredible resource. That's yes. what I'm saying. I love that. Yes. Okay. And then lastly, Tell us the last thing that made you smile. Oh, um, that's so interesting. Cause okay, so just this morning, I went to my son's school as a mystery reader. So he did not know that I was coming. And all the kids in the classroom, like they got a chance to pick someone who they wanted to, you know, you could sign up. You could be a grandparent, a cousin, a sibling, whatever. And he didn't know I was coming. And I walk in the door this morning after his teacher kind of gave clues of who the mystery reader was. And I saw his face <laughs> and I walked in the door and he was like, <gasps> oh, so that in and of itself, I was like, all right, I don't got to do nothing today. I got a giant toothy toothless really is what it is. I got a giant toothless grin from our son. I'm set today. That's oh. what we And now I'm yes. set. Oh, heartwarming. Oh, my gosh. I was like, this is amazing. And I was like, and I don't want to be in a room full of five-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's special. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for your time and your mind today. We have learned so much from you today. Thank you for listening and learning with us today. We hope you feel activated and encouraged to go out to make a difference in your corner of the work. If you like what you heard, we would love it if you left us a rating and review or share us with a friend. You can find us on Instagram at littlebitofgood underscore or at littlebitofgood.org. And we'd love to hear your thoughts and questions about today's conversation. So send us a message at shortchangedpod at gmail.com. We'll see y'all next time on the Short Change Podcast.